Well, please turn back, if you have a Bible there, and keep it open at Genesis 25, as we study today, verses 27 to 34. Genesis 25, verses 27 to 34. And our theme, quite simply, taken from that passage we just read in Hebrews, but our theme today is simply, do not be like Esau. Do not be like Esau. Well, I wonder, boys and girls, is there someone of whom you have said, when I grew up, I want to be like him or like her? Or for those of us who are older today, was there someone that we said that about, that we wanted to be like that person when we grew up? Maybe you have a favorite singer or a favorite sports person. When you, when you watch them play or perform, you just think to yourself, I want to be like that. The way they do that, the way they're so good at that. Maybe as you get older, it's someone within your field of interest. Maybe there was someone who inspired you to start your business. Maybe someone's approach to parenting or marriage or the way someone has dealt with a a really difficult trial in their lives. You want to be like them in that area of your life. As Christians, it's certainly good for us to to want to become more like others who are ahead of us in the Christian journey. Uh, And that's something that the the scriptures command to us and encourage us to do. Paul could even say to the Philippians, chapter 4, verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. So he said, insofar as I've set you an example of godliness and I've taught you God's word, you should be like me. But equally, there are times when the Bible quite clearly tells us that there are people or there are examples that we are to avoid, that there are those that we are to not be like at all, uh, those who lack repentance and faith. And Esau is one such person. Now listen again to what the writer to the Hebrews says, chapter 12, verse 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Do not be like Esau, the writer tells us. Why is that? Why is such a negative statement made about this man? Well, it's all because of the terrible choice that Esau made, which we've read about and come to study now together today. And right at the start, friends, we have to acknowledge that the scriptures require us to submit to and to hold in our minds two truths which may at times seem contradictory to us, but which are put forth with equal authority in God's word. First of all, we believe the truth that God is sovereign in salvation and in everything else. And we thought about that at more length last Lord's Day. We thought about how God made clear to Rebekah before her children were even born that Jacob was the chosen son through him the covenant line would extend. Uh, And so we thought about God's sovereignty, particularly in relation to our salvation. But we also believe the truth of Scripture, that we are all accountable to God for the choices that we make. Esau may not have been the child of promise, but he still had a choice, as we'll see today. And he made the wrong choice. And as a result, the writer to the Hebrews warns us, do not be like Esau. I want to think about this passage. We'll work our way through the story uh, and make three observations about it. 
Uh, and first of all, we think today of how Esau shows his personality. Esau shows his personality. Remember what God told Rebekah. And no doubt Isaac was made very well aware of it as well. Uh, God said to Rebekah, chapter 25, verse 23, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. So there's going to be this drastic division, short-term and long-term, in the lives of Jacob and Esau, and in the nations that will come from them. But that division between the two brothers is clear as soon as they're born. Look at verse 25. It says that Esau came out red or ruddy, all his body like a hairy cloak, even as a newborn. Esau has a rough and ready look about him. Whereas it says Jacob comes out, verse 26, hanging on to his brother's heel. One preacher sums them up as the hairy monster and the heel snatcher. Uh, hopefully none of you ever had a newborn, uh, your newborn baby described as either a hairy monster or a heel snatcher. But the point is that from the moment they're born, these boys are different. They're very obviously different. Yes, they were twins, but Rebecca did not have to dress them in different outfits to tell them apart. They were not identical twins. They were divided twins. And the division between them only becomes more obvious as they get older. If you look at verse 27, it says, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, while Rebekah loved Jacob. As the boys grow up and their personalities and interests become clear, these parents do a very foolish thing, a dreadful thing. They play favorites. Very foolish thing to do. But each of the parents is drawn to something about one of the children uh, that particularly attracts them. Esau is a man's man. Esau is never at home. He's always out cutting his knees, exploring the land, hunting his prey. And his father, Isaac, likes that. Isaac, from the little that we see of him in Genesis, Genesis doesn't give us a lot of detail about Isaac's life, but it shows us that Isaac seems to have been a pretty gentle, quiet man. And maybe it's the case that he was attracted to the son who was the most different from him. Sometimes opposites attract. And Isaac loved nothing more than seeing Esau come home with the blood dripping down him and a carcass over his shoulder and getting ready to cook the dinner and they would sit down and enjoy a big tasty plateful of meat together. Rebecca's the opposite. She's attracted to her more homely, settled son, Jacob, who was perhaps maybe a lot more like her husband. Verse 27 says that Jacob was a quiet man. The word there it's actually usually translated in the Old Testament blameless or righteous, but most of the commentators suggest that here, in the context here, it's not saying, of course, that Jacob is a blameless man, far from it, as we'll see, but it's saying that compared to Esau, who was always out up to something, you could always find Jacob in the same spot. He's at home. He's not doing anything particularly risky or dangerous. He's in the tents. He's near his mum. He's going to become a shepherd. Not an easy job, but certainly not a life-threatening job. So these twins are divided already. Everything about them is different, from their body hair to their personalities. 
Just look how Esau's personality, though, comes out in verse 30. Look at verse 30. Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And the language there is, is a lot more demanding and gruff in the original. Really what Esau says is, if you took it literally, let me gulp down the red, the red stuff. That's what he says. Let me gulp down the red. Give it to me. And that's the kind of man Esau is. He's up, he hunts, he comes home, he eats, he rests, he repeats. Has he heard about his birthright? Well, of course he has. We'll think more about the birthright and what it really was and what it really meant in just a moment. But it wasn't just something that Abraham's family invented. This was something that many families in that culture in that day had. There's no doubt, as we'll think in a moment, that Esau would have known about his birthright and all the, and how important it was. And surely, too, over all those plates of roasted game that Isaac and Esau enjoyed together, Isaac told Esau about the promises of God. Surely Isaac had perhaps even sat Esau on his grandfather's knee, Abraham, and let him hear all the things that God had promised to their family. But Esau had no interest in pursuing those things those things that would take so long to come to him, those things that were way off as far as he could see in the future. Esau is all about pursuing another day's hunting, another night's eating. Esau's life is all about where he can go and what he can see and smell and taste and touch right now. His life is about the cares of this world. He doesn't care about the world to come. And friends, what was true of Esau is true of so many people today. Maybe it's even true of you. It's not that you haven't heard about the promises of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent and receive forgiveness from your sins. You've heard that, not just today, but multiple times. And you've heard of the fact that God calls us then, having granted us graciously salvation, he calls us to live a holy life to fear God, to turn away from evil, to store up treasure in heaven, to live lives of service to Jesus Christ. But you've chosen instead to make your life all about the cares of this world, the things that we can smell and see and buy and taste and touch, the places that we can go to, the cares of the world. That's how Jesus describes it in his parable, his parable of the seed and the sower, Mark chapter 4 Verse 18, Jesus says, There are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The cares of the world. It's been said that in our world today, we are addicted to hurry, worry, and busy. We're all busy. Kids need sorted out with school and sport and friends. Work needs done. The house needs sorted. And everyone's talking about all these good programs there are on TV that we've been missing out on. Our world is full of things, just like Esau's world was, that we can see and taste and have and experience right now. 
We don't have to wait more than a few minutes or a few hours or at most a few days for our delivery to arrive or for our team to play, for our trip to be booked. And all of it seems so pressing and so important. And the warnings of God and the love of God and the gospel of Christ, the birthright, if you like, that God holds out to us, just gets left on the back burner. That was Esau's personality. More than that, it was his heart. We'll be thinking much more about the human heart this evening, God willing. But the human heart is not naturally inclined to the things of God. It's more inclined to the cares of the world. Is that you today? Is there a touch of Esau about you? Notice that in the passage we're looking at today, at least, Esau is not described as a bad man. We'll learn things about him later that are a lot more questionable. But for now, Esau is not killing anyone. He's, he's not lying or cheating. He's not openly dishonoring his parents. In some ways, you could say there's actually a lot more, there's more things that are attractive about Esau than there are about Jacob. But Esau is only concerned with the cares of the world. Is that you today? No one would call you a bad person. Maybe many people would say he or she's a very nice person. Hardworking, honest, provides for the family. But you've refused to take seriously the call of God to you in Jesus Christ. This world and this life is your only concern rather than the world and the life to come. If that's you today, the Bible warns you, do not be like Esau. So Esau shows his personality. But secondly, Jacob grasps his opportunity. <clears throat> Jacob grasps his opportunity. And I use the word grasps intentionally. This is what his, what his name means. Jacob's name means he grasps at the heel. And the idea, of course, is that he tries to trip people up. I remember when I was playing rugby at school, uh, there was a lot of really good rugby players in my year at school. There was a guy on our team, John, super player. Uh, one of his strengths was tackling. And even if you somehow managed to get past John and he didn't wrap his arms around you and, and drag you to the ground, he would sometimes manage a, a tap tackle. And if you don't know what a tap tackle is, a tap tackle is the last resort if you're trying to tackle someone in rugby. Say they do get past you and they think they're in the clear, you just... At full stretch, reach out your arm and just swipe their ankle. And they think they're past you and then they go flying to the ground. Um, and John was, John was a superb tap tackler. Remember one training session, I thought it was past him and he got me. Um, there's something very cold and ruthless about the tap tackle. If you've been watching, boys and girls, if you've been watching the Six Nations and uh, you've been enjoying the Six Nations, get your mum or dad sometime in the next few days to show you on YouTube the 10 best tap tackles. There's something really cold and ruthless about the tap tackle. And Jacob here is living up to his name. He is cold and he is ruthless. He sees an opportunity to, to get something from his brother, something he really wants, the birthright. And he takes it in a ruthless fashion. What was this birthright? We don't really have the concept today. It's probably very unfamiliar to us and we really don't have all the details given to us in Scripture of what the birthright entailed. But from what we do see in Scripture, from what we know of the culture of that time and place, 
essentially, the birthright was the tradition of giving to the eldest son a double measure of wealth and respect and prestige. Traditionally, the first son received double the portion of a father's property compared to the next child. Deuteronomy 21 verse 17 says, The firstborn will receive a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. It also seems from what we glean elsewhere in Scripture, from the customs of the time as well, that the firstborn son at some point would really become the spiritual leader of the household and of the, even perhaps of the extended family. That at some point, either when his father died or his father was perhaps very old and weak, the firstborn really assumed responsibility for the family's business, for the family's safety, for the family's religion. And many of you will know that when we come to Genesis 27, a couple of chapters time, there is a special blessing that Isaac tries to give to Esau. Um, the, but the birthright and the blessing seem to be closely connected. They're, they're maybe not quite the same thing, but they're closely connected. In fact, the two words in Hebrew have all the same letters. You only need to switch around a couple of the letters in the Hebrew word for birthright, and it becomes the Hebrew word for blessing. So most likely, whoever got the birthright could also expect to get the blessing. And despite the fact that God has already told Isaac and Rebekah that their younger son would rise to prominence over the older, it becomes clear, as we'll get into in the weeks ahead, that Isaac would have preferred for Esau to get the birthright and the blessing. But, Jacob, but Rebekah wants it to be Jacob. And again, in Rebekah and Jacob's defense, Jacob is the son chosen by God who will receive the covenant promises, who will extend the line of Abraham through him, the covenant blessings will come. But how the way in which Jacob goes about getting the birthright and the blessing is despicable. It's horrible what he does. And there's a lot of irony in the text when Esau comes in from the field in verse 29. Here comes the hunter but he doesn't seem to have had a very successful day's hunting. He has nothing to show for his work, and he's exhausted, and he's famished, and Jacob is ready for him. The hunter doesn't realize that he's now the hunted. He's the prey, and he's walked right into his brother's trap. One preacher said, I can't prove it, but I think this was a setup. It was a setup that Jacob just so happened to have this lovely, delicious-smelling stew wafting around the tents just when Esau happened to come home. Jacob, who was probably physically inferior to Esau, has nonetheless outsmarted Esau. And when Esau demands that he be given some of the red, the red stuff, as he says, Jacob is ready with his demand. Verse 31, sell me your birthright now. And so Esau rudely demands the stew. Jacob ruthlessly demands the birthright. In fact, look what Jacob says after Esau initially sort of puts up a protest. He says, what good is a birthright? Jacob says, verse 33, swear to me. Swear before God. This, is, this has turned into a legal transaction. This is something that can't be reversed. 
He demands that Esau hand over his birthright in such a way that he can never take it again. Jacob sees his opportunity and he coldly, ruthlessly takes it. Now again, we could point out the birthright perhaps should have been Jacob's anyway. God had told Isaac and Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Isaac should have been planning to give the birthright and the blessing to Jacob. But friends, just because Jacob was God's chosen son did not mean he had any right to get his blessings any way he wanted. And it's very jarring. It's, it's a bit cringy, isn't it? It's very unsettling to see one brother deal so cruelly with the other like this. Boys and girls, again, do not be like Esau. And in this case, do not be like Jacob either. Yes, Esau is all bluster. And yes, if Esau had thought this through, he could have avoided it in any number. He just had to say no. He just had to go and make himself some food. But Jacob knew the sort of personality Esau was. And Jacob's scheming and grasping here is despicable. And it's a reminder to us that we are not justified in choosing any means we wish to get whatever we want, claiming as we do so that we have God on our side. Isn't that what we saw with the temptations that Jesus faced? We looked at that passage a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 4, as Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. I'll give you these nations if you bow down. And Jesus withstood those temptations, believing that it was not for him to decide when and how God would provide him with the blessings of being God's son. Or think of the story of King David, if you remember. If you've read through the life of King David, you remember that twice when King Saul was wickedly hunting David to try and kill him, twice David had the chance to kill Saul. Saul was at his mercy, twice. But twice David restrained himself, leaving it to God to decide when and how he would receive the blessing of being king instead of Saul. Point being, friends, sometimes we find ourselves in a similar position. We might have the opportunity to get something, to achieve something, to cheat our way ahead for something we believe we deserve, but instead we're to leave it to God. Maybe you have the opportunity to make money. You need to provide for your family. Prices are high. There's no sign of a pay rise coming, but this particular money-making scheme is not quite 100% above board. Do you tell yourself you deserve it? Do you grasp that opportunity? Or do you leave it to God to decide when and how he will provide for you and the needs of your family? Maybe you come across someone who's done something wrong, maybe even a fellow Christian. The evidence is clear. They don't have a leg to stand on. But because you're in the know, you decide you'll tell everybody and anybody as quietly and subtly as you can. And gossip spreads and stories spread and all you've really done is grasp the opportunity to ruin that person's reputation and make yourself look better in the process. People sometimes excuse themselves from giving in to certain temptations, be it sexual or otherwise, and say, well, the opportunity was there. If, if God didn't want me to do this, why was it just all put in front of me? It's no excuse at all. Jacob might have been the chosen son, but there's nothing commendable about him here at all. The ends do not justify the means. 
And not every opportunity presented is an opportunity we should grasp. So Esau shows us his personality. Jacob grasps his opportunity. And thirdly and finally, Esau makes us think about our priorities. Esau makes us think about our priorities. Jacob springs his trap. Esau walks right into the middle of it. Esau thinks with his stomach, not with his head. Look what he says in verse 32. I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? There's a lot of discussion among the commentators there about those words, I am about to die. Was he genuinely injured or unwell? Uh, Is he just exaggerating? Uh, Most commentators, and I would tend to agree with them, go with the, the notion that he's simply just exaggerating here. He's just prone to these outbursts. You would think if you were really dying, that would be the first thing you would say rather than give me that red stew. Um, so it's more than likely he's just impatient. This is like when you or I come home and say, oh, I'm starving. My wife, my wife tells me you shouldn't be saying that. You're not actually starving. You're just really, really hungry and you're being impatient. Um, so it's a bit like when we say things like that. That's probably what was going on here with Esau. But look how quickly everything transpires in verse 33. Jacob says, swear to me now. He's ruthless. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And so much is Esau taken up with the cares of the world that he doesn't stop to think of the consequences of what he's doing here. This is one bowl of food versus a lifetime of blessing. Symbolically, the bowl and the birthright represent a choice, friends, between this world and the world to come. One commentator says, Esau did not get a good bargain. Lentils were common, whereas the family birthright was unmatched. Esau doesn't think about that. He thinks about the bowl of stew and the rumble in his belly. One preacher says, you can almost see the saliva running down his chin. He wants what will satisfy him now. He has no interest and no desire for what will satisfy him in the future. Just look at the last verse, verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. He ate and drank and rose and went his way. There's almost a little echo there of Genesis chapter 3. Eve saw the fruit, she took it, she ate. It's all done in an instant. It's like David as, as well with Bathsheba. He saw her, he sent for her, he lay with her. That was it. Without thinking it through, the deed is done. And those verbs, he ate, he drank, he rose, he left. A man of the moment, a man concerned with the here and now and nothing else. The writer to the Hebrews describes him as unholy. Some of your translations there in Hebrews 12 will have the word profane. One commentator chooses the word secular. Esau was a secular man. What does that mean? We hear that word used, sometimes used very proudly. Hear some of our politicians using it. This is a secular country. It means you're someone who eats and drinks and rises and thinks nothing more about anything important. You go to work, you go on your night out, you enjoy your leisure, you spend time with your friends, you eat your food, 
and that's it. When the Apostle Peter was trying to discourage Jesus from going to Jerusalem, knowing that Jesus was going to die on the cross, Jesus suddenly turned to Peter and said in Matthew 16, 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For listen, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's thinking to himself, sacrifice, death, humiliation, being cast out. What kind of a Messiah is that? Where's that going to get us? Surely, Jesus, you don't need to be going and doing that. Jesus says to him, you're thinking about things, you're thinking about the cares of the world, comfort, ease, self-preservation, self-service. You're not thinking about the things of God. Esau challenges us, friends. The whole story of Esau causes us to consider what are our priorities. Esau was setting his mind on the things of man, the things of this life, not on the things of God. Which is it for you? Does your life bear witness to someone only taken up with the things of the world? I realize we have to have, we have to cede to the things of the world. We have to cede to our families. We have to eat and drink. We have to do our work and so forth. But is that all our lives are? Or have you set your hopes on your birthright? God's promise of a better world to come if you live by faith in this world now. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's a bit like what we thought about last Sabbath evening in Proverbs, that the father speaking to his son in Proverbs does not just want them to be healthy and happy, he wants him to be holy. Esau was not a holy man. And the choice for us today is similar. A bowl of lentils, symbolically speaking, the stuff that will satisfy for a few minutes, the clothes, the hobbies, the sport, or a birthright of blessing, life to the full, forgiveness of sins, life in Christ, life in his kingdom, life eternal. Which is it for you? Which is your top priority? Christ or the world? Kingdom or comfort? This world or the world to come. There are many people, boys and girls, and men and women, there are many people that we ought to be like. But the Bible warns us, do not be like unholy Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. The writer of the Hebrew says, afterward he had no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Today you have a chance to repent. Tomorrow you may not. Don't just spend your life eating and drinking and rising up and lying down and working hard and getting rest. That will end with what the Bible calls bitter regret. What will make hell so hellish is that you will have bitter regret in your heart for eternity because a pathetic bowl of stew seems so much more attractive than repentance and faith and service of Christ. Don't be like Esau. Instead, Seek first, make your top priority, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Amen.